Well, let's take our Bible, shall we, and go to Psalm 19 for our study of God's Word. And I want this to be a preparation for us for our prayer meeting here in just a little bit. I love Psalm 19. You love Psalm 19. And uh, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks studying this wonderful hymn together. And uh, I'm going to try to do it in 25 or 30 minutes. So I want to preach a sermon that I have entitled, God Has Revealed Himself. Follow with me as I begin with the title. It is a psalm of David. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For the choir director. It was Saturday night, just a few days ago, Elizabeth and I were driving home from Iowa, spending a weekend with Tony Miano and his church family there. And it was fairly uh, late in the Saturday evening hours, and I was driving, and it was a clear night, and Elizabeth reclined her seat in the passenger seat all the way back, and she opened the sunroof, and she was watching and looking at the stars. I tried to do it, but I was driving. I couldn't do it very much. But she was in awe of our great God and how he has revealed himself. And you have done that. And I have done that. And you have been in awe of the power of God and the glory of God and the splendor of God and how God has revealed himself so wonderfully in creation. You've been there. Charles Spurgeon said, if you and I were wise, we would read both the world book and the word book. 
and we would read them as two volumes of the same work, and then we would shout, my father wrote both of them. He wrote both of them. And because that is the case, we need to understand there is never, ever a contradiction or a discrepancy between the testimony of nature and the testimony of Scripture. There's never a contradiction. They will always coincide. They will always harmonize and always support one another perfectly. And I suppose when you and I can't figure it out, when you and I can't figure out all the answers, the problem is not with God. The problem is not with his creation. The problem is with us and our puny, finite minds. But the point is that God has spoken. God has revealed himself in the world book and in the word book. David wrote Psalm 19, and he brings us to that very truth, the world book and the word book. David wrote this as a psalm, meaning it was intended to be plucked from a stringed instrument. And at the end of the psalm, the conclusion is for the choir director, meaning David wanted this to be sung in the congregation. He wanted it to be memorized by the congregation and hidden in the heart by the worshipers of Israel. This psalm in the original Hebrew is Hebrew poetry. It is literary genius at its best. It's no wonder that Beethoven, Mozart, and Haydn were all influenced by this psalm in their music. Psalm 19 also has impacted Romans 1 and Romans 10, and if we're to be honest, I think the whole structure and theme of the whole book of Romans in large part comes from Psalm 19. I think David is writing this psalm so that we would behold the glory of God revealed in the world and in the word. What we're going to look at today, and you see the different outlines there in your uh, your handout, God's glory in the skies and God's glory in the scriptures. We, We see God in general revelation for all to see in nature, And we also learn about God in special revelation, where God has revealed himself in the scriptures, in the Bible. So Psalm 19 is where we are tonight, and I just want to walk through this with you, and I want to to show you how this amazing psalm is going to speak and sing and shout that God has revealed himself. It shouts that God has revealed himself, and we will see how God has done so in two two ways, two wonderful ways. I want you to see in verses 1 to 6 right here as we begin that God has revealed himself in the visible world. And isn't it amazing we live in days when people actually deny it? They deny that. But I would rather believe what God says than skeptics who live in our day. 
God has so clearly revealed himself in the visible world. And when you and I read verses 1 to 6, we need to understand that the heavens that God has made are actively shouting, look at my creator. Look at my creator. Look at my creator. Now, let's walk through these verses together, and we'll just pull out a couple of brief points. There's so, so much that could be said. But number one, notice how God reveals himself celestially. Verse one, the heavens, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse, or the skies is declaring the work of his hands. You and I look up and we see the sky, the heavens, the moon, the star, the sun, all that God has made above, and they are all shouting forth, God has made me. It is quite amazing that the Hebrew verbs in verse 1 are intensive and continuous. The heavens are constantly proclaiming the glory of God. And the skies above are constantly declaring or preaching that the skies are the work of his hands. The heavens are proclaiming, I've been made by God the creator. God reveals himself not only celestially in the heavens, but second, daily. Daily. And look at verse 2. Day to day. It pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge, a figure of speech all the time. The day we have the light of the sun, the blue skies. At night we have the moon and the stars and and the planets and our solar system and all that God has made, all that he has created. Day to day it is pouring forth the amazing speech and knowledge of God. By the way, that leads to a third way that God has revealed himself, and that's clearly. That's clearly. Because in verse 2, do you see how it says day to day it pours forth speech? That's a very gentle way to describe the Hebrew verb. The Hebrew verb at the beginning of verse 2 is actually gushing. It's like a Niagara Falls just gushing forth over the edge. It gushes forth profusely like torrents and gushes of water. God's glory is constantly going forth, gushing forth daily and nightly, revealing the knowledge of God. Isn't that amazing? Every part of creation is proclaiming the Creator. Your human body, a snowflake, a blade of grass, an atom, nature, physical laws, stars, the petals of a flower, everything testifies to the power and skill of our Creator. And not only does God proclaim Himself celestially, daily, clearly, He does it forth orderly, orderly. Don't forget this and we can't overlook this. Do you see in verse three, 
There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. All over the world, there's no language, meaning speech. There's no, there's no dialect. That's the idea there. There's no speech. There's no language anywhere on planet Earth where all of the glory of God in the heavens is absent. Everybody sees it. And then verse 4. You got to get this. Do you see the opening of verse 4? Their line. Their line. Line upon line. Precept upon precept from the book of Isaiah. What's the point? That God has revealed himself with order, with skill, with design. Everybody knows that there is an intelligent creator. Now, they may not believe in him, They may not submit to him. They may hate him. But they know that this God exists. God has proclaimed and revealed himself celestially, daily, clearly, orderly. Verse 4, their line goes out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. What an amazing God that he reveals himself in an orderly, global way. The knowledge of God, the order of God, the skill of God, so clear. And not only can we just say all of those things, let's look at number five. God reveals himself mightily. Mightily, with the example of that big ball of fire out there, 93 million miles away, all the mass of the sun, if it were a 10-pound bowling ball, everything on planet Earth and all of the solar system and everything in our solar system would be the mass of a penny compared to the great mass of the sun. And God has revealed himself mightily, for example, end of verse 4, in the skies, God has placed a tent for the sun, verse 5, which is like a bridegroom coming out of the chamber. It rejoices like a strong man to run his course. What's David doing? I've talked about the skies. I've showed you how mighty and powerful and glorious and clear and orderly and daily God has revealed himself above. Let's just take one example. The sun. The sun. It's like like the sky and the outer space is a tent where God has pitched the sun like a torch in order to light up the vast expanse. And David, as a brilliant writer, is going to bring out two metaphors. Two metaphors, or maybe technically similes. The sun is like, verse 5, a bridegroom. And the sun, verse 5, is like a mighty man or a champion running his course. A bridegroom, radiant. Glowing, beaming, bright, excited, eager, one who is coming with a purpose. And the sun is like a champion, a runner, a mighty man, strong, tireless, enduring, always moving forward, never growing weary. Do you want to see how big our God is? Look at the sun. Do you want to see how God has revealed himself for all creation to see? Look at the sun. 
26,000 degrees Fahrenheit at its core, 93 million miles away, and yet God made this. God knows everything about it. The distance is perfect. Everything about that sun is perfect for life to exist and thrive on planet Earth. And then, as if that wasn't enough, look at verse 6. God reveals himself expansively. The rising of the sun is from one end of the heavens and the circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Ha! Somebody might say, even a blind person perhaps might not know that there's a God because he can't see anything. David says, oh, the end of verse 6, but even a blind person feels the heat of the sun. They are without excuse. The general revelation of God, the wisdom of God, the, the order of God's design is revealed to everyone everywhere on the planet without exception. Now, what that means is that from God's revelation in the visible world, you and I know that God exists, all people do. And everybody knows that God is a God of order. And creation informs us that God is powerful. And yet, tragically, according to Romans chapter 1, many people have rejected the creator and they love to worship the creation instead. You need to hear this. The intelligent intelligent secularist and the elite atheist, whatever Ivy League university they might be in, they see less than the heavens reveal. Why? Because they are spiritually blind. They are spiritually blind. So when we look at these verses and we see the glory of God on display in the visible world, think of it like this. The world is a theater for God to put his glory on display. And every person in all of the world is the spectator watching as the spotlight is on God. He reveals his glory. Now, before we move on to point two, I got to take you back to verse five. Do you see how verse five is describing the son by way of two similes, figures of speeches? Just like the bridegroom and just like the champion. Well, God put the son... For light in the dark sky, isn't it amazing to see a parallel that God also gave another son, another light, the Lord Jesus, in his incarnation, who came to visit his people, to clothe his people with a robe of righteousness. And not only that, guess what? There's a parallel here. Jesus came as the bridegroom and he came as the champion. He's the bridegroom because he loves and he dies for his bride. And Jesus is the perfect son as the strong man, the champion who completes his course to save us to the uttermost. God reveals himself mightily, powerfully for all to see. Yes, in the visible world, praise God, even in the incarnate word. Jesus Christ as well. 
as we see the glory of God revealed, what do we do? You see it in your outline there. Number one, ponder him. We're busy. And the intention of number one here is to stop and pause and to gaze and to see the power and glory and wisdom of God revealed in his creation. Not only ponder him, but then praise him and then proclaim him to others. But don't forget number four, you presuppose him. You don't have to argue with people for the evidence and existence of God. Every person, including every unbeliever everywhere on the planet, you have an ally within them. And that ally within them is a knowledge that God already exists. They know it. Psalm 19 makes it clear. So presuppose him. You don't need to argue for God. You don't need to, as if the unbeliever is somehow the judge to determine whether or not there's a God. No, we presuppose that they know this God exists. And they're accountable to him. Well, not only did God reveal himself in the visible world, God has revealed himself, second, in the written word. And this is important for us because you and I live in times where you look around and there's just nowhere to find joy in the things around us. Where where do people go for guidance? Where do people go for protection? Well, for you and me as a believer, we go to the word of God and we behold the glory of God there. We navigate our way through life by the word of God and we have joy and we have peace and we have comfort and we have confidence. So we have the word, we hold the word. Notice, Verses 7 to 9 tells us about the attributes. What is the Bible like? You've got your Bible in front of you. What is the Bible like? This is God testifying about his own word. I agree with Spurgeon. I believe there's a progression in these attributes. Verse 7, the law of the Lord. And then it's called the testimony of the Lord. And then verse 8, it's called the precepts of the Lord. And then the commandment of the Lord. And then it's called the fear of the Lord. Why? Because the Bible produces fear. And then verse 9, the judgments of the Lord. What does the Bible do? What is it? Well, it's perfect, verse 7. Perfect. The word for perfect means complete. What does it do? The best Hebrew translation of verse 7, it converts the soul. It is the Bible that converts the soul. It restores, yeah, sure, but a a better and more faithful and more common translation, it converts. When God converts an unbeliever, he always works by and with the written word, the Bible. The Spirit of God does not work apart from the Word of God. You don't go to the mountaintop and behold the bigness of God and and get converted all of a sudden. There's got to be truth from the written Word, and that is the power to convert the soul. And then when God converts the soul through the Word, look at verse 7. Then the testimony of the Lord is sure, it's faithful, and it it makes you wise. The word, the word simple there at the end of verse 7 is the open-minded. That's not a good thing, by the way. That's foolish, according to the book of Proverbs. 
We are not to be open-minded. We are to be, we are to be biblically minded. And it's God's word that makes us wise. Verse 8, well then, it brings joy to the heart. It brings joy to the heart and not only is the word right and the word pure, in the middle of verse 8, the commandment of the Lord is pure. That word means clear. It's lucid. You can understand it. And it endures forever. Oh, I love that. The word of God endures forever. Enlightening the eyes. Pardon me, it enlightens the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. And it endures forever. The heavens and the earth will pass away, Jesus said, but my words will never pass away. And then verse 9 ends, the judgments of the Lord are true. God's word is true. Don't miss the plural judgments. Every single precept and verse and word in the Bible is true. They are righteous altogether. Interesting in the Hebrew, they are one. They are all one and they are righteous together. Meaning the Bible is a unified whole. Every single part of the Bible is true because it is a unified whole. You can't take any of it out. It is true. It is a unity. These are the attributes of Scripture. Perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true. And this is what the Word does in your life. It gives you joy. It teaches you. It instructs you. It guides you. It gladdens you. It gives you illumination. This is the Word of God. Nothing in all the world more powerful in your life and my life than this right here, God's Word, the Bible. These are the attributes of Scripture. And then we turn to verse 10 and 11. Well, so what? See, see you have a Bible on your app, on your phone, and you got a Bible on your shelf. But do you appreciate it? It's one thing for the Bible to be true. It's another thing for it to affect you and me. Verse 10, they are more desirable than gold, than much fine gold. Would you sell everything in your house? Give it all away to keep the Bible? Would you willingly part with anything in this world except the Bible? If someone robbed your home, take anything and everything, but don't take God's word. If there was a fire in your home and you were running out and had one thing to take, what would you take? But God's word. Sweeter than honey. This book is more delightful. It is sweeter than the finest satisfaction in your life. Can you say that? And the more that we read the word, the more that we appreciate the word. They go together. Why? Because there's a transforming power that the word has in your life. So if you don't appreciate the word like you ought, well then read more of the word. And God will transform us as we do that. 
The word is desirable. It is precious. Verse 11 even tells us why we appreciate the word. By the words of God, the servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Do you see that there? There's a warning and a reward. What a good God. What a kind Father. You know, if, because God's word is like this, let, let's read it. Study it. Teach it to our children, grandchildren, others in the church. Cherish it and obey it well. You know, I was reading and came across the account of John Huss, late medieval period. You've heard of him. John Wycliffe and John Huss were around the same period, and they were, they were preaching, they were writing, they were testifying to men and women in their times that they ought to trust in Scripture, believe in Scripture, live your life according to Scripture, believe in Scripture alone, as it teaches us of Christ. Well, on one occasion, John Huss was challenged by hostile, bloodthirsty officials, and John Huss reported to them, and he replied to them, show me from the Bible where I'm wrong, then I will repent and I will recant. But he didn't, and he was burned for his faith. Where do you get this kind of courage? Where do we get that kind of steel in our spine to live with boldness and courage and unflinching resolve to follow God like this even to death? It's from knowing the Bible and appreciating the Bible and being changed by the Bible. Well, well, then the application of it, you got to do something with it as well. Yes, the attributes, and yes, we appreciate it. But then verse 12, who can discern his errors? Well, the answer, it's the person who knows and studies the Bible. Acquit me, clear me of hidden faults, unintentional sins, Lord. Verse 13, what a prayer. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Oh, don't let them rule over me. Don't let me sin willfully. Let your word guard me, protect me, watch me, keep me. Because verse 13, I want to be blameless and I will be acquitted of great transgressions. It is the word of God that guards and keeps and protects the people of God. And I think verse 14 is quite a prayer for us, right? Wouldn't you agree? I mean, this is a prayer for you and for me each day. In my Hebrew class in seminary, our professor would close the prayer by praying verse 14 every class period. Let the words of my mouth and let the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. So you're in relationships. Your marriage, your parenting, your work with your coworkers, with your boss, with your clients, with strangers, with people who like you, people who don't like you. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, may it all be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my <laughs> redeemer. This psalm brings us to the glorious 
glorious revelation of God, generally for all mankind to see in creation, and specially in the written word, as it reveals to us our sin and our condition and our predicament and our only hope that is found in Jesus Christ. Wise, wise and happy is the man who beholds the revelation of God in the visible world and in the written word. And then as a result of that, we stand in awe of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. From Psalm 19, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that you have revealed yourself so clearly, sovereignly, undeniably in the world book and in the word book. Help us to know it, study it, love it, and be in awe of who you are. In Jesus' name.